Welcome in, everyone. Welcome to the Buddhist Wisdom Podcast. And uh, again, I have my friend uh, Deborah Eden Toll here with me, um, Dharma teacher, author, spiritual activist, all around um, badass, <laughs> if I can say that, if that's okay, all around amazing uh, teacher. So welcome back. Uh, welcome back, Eden. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Scott, I'm grateful to be here with you. We had such a deep, dropped in, fascinating conversation last time and i love the topic that we're touching today yeah yeah and just just to say a little bit about that uh eden and i we you know we have many topics we want to talk about but we chose to talk about eros and um how eros uh, relates to our spiritual path so um this is going to be an interesting one so uh, i think i've been looking forward to this for a while so so eden I, i'd love to hear just kicking it off, um, what you, um, how do you define Eros, you know, just, just briefly, and then we can go into more sure. uh, depth on it. I think first, um, I want to really encourage a broad definition of Eros. I always go actually back to the Greeks for whom Eros is the creative impulse. It's mm canalize the existence of all of life and it arises from the void or darkness and just to acknowledge that we're talking about life force you know, to be alive is to be open receptive to relate to share life and i think it's interesting that as we deepen our practice of meditation of dharma there is much more space generally for arrows to come through much more life force, vibrant aliveness. And yet erotic energy is really stirring. And so often it is left out of Dharma conversations or Dharma teachings. So I think this creates a really interesting field of inquiry for people. And I want to say just towards the beginning of this conversation that nothing that we'll offer today is prescriptive, just sharing. Uh, an emergent conversation from our two perspectives and experience about what's helpful to consider around this topic. Yeah. 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 I really appreciate that introduction. And yeah, just seconding that for any listeners out there, people watching on YouTube or another format. Um, yeah. Just welcoming everyone and in, in, in where they're at. And, you know, already, I think you, you already opened up for me, a lot of questions, because when I, when I Googled Eros, it, you know, it, I didn't do like a super deep Google on it, but when I Googled it, it just basically says romantic, passionate love. It does refer to like the Greek God Eros. And, um, there was an interesting one though. And, and you're, you're starting to name it where there was a kind of in a short paragraph, they did said, uh, in, in the Greek interpretation, well, of the actual Greek word, um, it, it, it more, it didn't refer to like, who we're attracted to, it referred to the the energy itself. And I think you were naming that as like, it's much broader than just passionate love. Yes. And, you know, I'm speaking as someone who, oh, spent seven and a half years as a Zen Buddhist monastic, who's experienced um, many different relationships, who's had periods in my life where I was less sexually active or periods where I was more, who's currently married to my beloved, um, and just to name that Eros has been a vital and useful inquiry through each and every one of those 
phases in life that really when we're talking about our relationship with embodiment and with life force, I think it's because life force is so stirring (laughs) that we've created so many rules around eros and around sexuality. And in this conversation, we're also navigating the complexity of all that we've inherited in terms of both really puritanical conditioning, uh, like here in the U.S., to within Buddhism, a long legacy of a sex-spirit divide seen differently through different traditions but still needs to be named, and also quite a bit of misogyny and I think it's important to acknowledge all of this complexity <laughs> while we presence this topic from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that a lot. And and please keep reminding because I think bringing that in, to me, it just helps us to open our lenses around what we're actually talking about. And, and also to recognize like you and I have certain lenses we're coming from. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a straight heterosexual male. Um, you know, and and there's both things that I'm conditioned by, and I would say viewpoints uh, people can condition me towards. Meaning, like they they also see me a certain way because of that reason, right? Yeah. Which I think we have to acknowledge both lenses. I'm with you absolutely, and I identify always identified as bisexual, and I'm married to my beloved, who's a man, and uh, identify as female, and. You know, I think I'll share that one of the times in life that this topic became most interesting is when I was in the transition from living as a monastic to living out in the world again and living in a social relational context rather than a silent Buddhist monastery and recognizing both the opportunity uh, because I was, I left the monastery to serve in a greater way, and I saw the, I saw what was missing from the people mm-hmm. I was guiding and teaching by this topic being left out. And I also happened to transition into living in the city of Los Angeles of all places after like silent monastery in the wilderness, <laughs> and so I felt like I brought a really beginner's mind to looking out at culture and just seeing, okay, I haven't been dating for eight years now. I've been celibate. And that was its own inquiry into relationship with the body, with sensuality, with receptivity through the deep, profound connectedness with nature that happens when we are in chosen silence. And yet looking out at the culture and seeing so much conditioning around sexuality and relationship that felt so inauthentic for me and so um, deeply embedded. And so I recognize both personally for me this new phase of re-entering the domain of relationship and sexuality. That's when I wrote the book Relational Mindfulness. And also, I recognized how thick the clouds of conditioning were that society seemed to be operating from. And 
I just found it interesting as someone who had committed my life to practice that I didn't see many places to look in terms of Dharma teachers or teachings to help guide me then. Yeah. I found that interesting and very limiting. So I feel like it's always generous when teachers presence this topic and offer guidance around this topic. And it was a really deeply rich time for me to get to distill down to, okay, folks, beyond the widely held duality, which has created both a sex-spirit divide, mm. we could even say a body-mind divide, but also the duality of repression versus explosion. Like, I felt like I was presented with this, there's either live the life of celibacy or repression is the way it often comes through in a puritanical lens to explosion you should be having as many partners as possible and learn the tantric secret to sexuality and it just felt so um dogmatic and limited (laughs) and there's a million gray areas in between which is about each and every one of us by letting go of conditioning and by dropping into deep inquiry of the body mind aligning with what is our own erotic intelligence and what is yeah totally yeah there's so many things in there and and, uh, you know you and i are are past you know the line so so much you know we, we explored last time when we were talking about your new book luminous darkness the um the um how we intersect with 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 death or loss at an early age of a parent and and then you know we our lives also intersect because we were both monastics for almost the same amount of time i was i was a a buddhist monastic for nine years and um and that that what you just said at the end is interesting because that's what i was thinking to share a little bit what that 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 those extremes of repression or explosion you know and i experienced those extremes uh, very very mm, uh, I don't know if profound is the right word, profoundly, but I, I, I experienced those, those extremes um, a lot, my, my entire life, you know, and and as a monastic, um, you know, I, I, I think this is a, a widely, you know, because most people do not get to experience what we did, right? And so in a way, we're, we have a lot of, um, I try to remember how fortunate it was to be able to live life as a Buddhist monastic for nine years. And I don't take it lightly. I, t- I try to also take responsibility that I have a responsibility of whatever I was able to deepen in study and practice through that, that then that becomes, you know, something I can share with others. So there's a responsibility to give back from it. Um, so I don't see that as a selfish time. But what I've noticed, because uh, most people don't have an experience as a, as a celibate monastic, is a lot of people judge it that you know first of all the vows you know we have many vows as a buddhist monastic celibacy just being one of them and a lot you know but everything kind of gets honed around that because it's as you say there's this kind of there's this un you know there's this element of western society or at least modern western society in the united states that hasn't um come to terms with with eros you know and and so it, it continues to function in very unhealthy ways for for the majority of us and, you know, I'd love to open that up with you in a minute um, as well and kind of as we move into our conversation. But, you know, what I noticed because of that, people were hyper-focused around celibacy and they were, they automatically assumed that it was a form of repression and, and not a form of engagement. 
And what I found over nine years is it, you know, just as what you were sharing a little bit, it was more a form of engaging with Eros on a level I had never engaged with it before. Because, you know, I, I often tell people this, it's like, you're putting up a no sign and that no sign or that danger sign allows a practice of mindfulness where you have to work with it. You have no choice. You know, you either work with it or you get eaten alive by it or, or stop being a monastic. And, and so, but throughout those nine years, I had, I had periods of repression, you know, and then towards the end, when I decided to return my monastic vows, there was kind of explosion in that sense, because, you know, I didn't think I was repressing, but I found out later on I was to a certain degree, but it kind of ebbed and flow, flowed for me. I don't know about you, but I had like period, the first three years were quite intense, where it was like a pot boiling and, you know, I was just trying to keep the lid on and not lose my my monastic uh, uh, vows. And then after that, it became a little bit like something to work with. But it, I, I saw it in waves where it would be kind of, you know, these waves of intensity. And uh, so for me, I didn't get deep enough beyond the managing phase, unfortunately. So in my monastic time, I was kind of more managing. And then towards the end, like I said, you know, it, it, I, when I decided to return the vows, it was kind of more of an explosion or release, even though I went into a, um, a long-term relationship after that and, and moved to New York. So it's kind of this, we have that similar vein. You moved to LA, I moved to New York, New York City. And so, so yeah, so I, I'd love to hear for you kind of the monastic element, because I think we can start there with the the dynamics of that, you know? Sure, yeah. And I, I want to also share this quote that relates. This is a quote by Almas, the founder of the Diamond Approach. Mm -hmm. And just one perspective, but he says, essence or realized self is not really embodied unless it can stay in your genitals. The deepest realization is in your genitals, he says, not in your head or in your mind. If essence doesn't stay in your genitals, it's not completely yours. That's a really um, packed quote. It's a really yeah. interesting perspective. But what it brings up for me kind of in relationship to this is just the, the memory of when I was a monastic, uh, getting to be in a deep inquiry. You named it as an absolute privilege. Yes. Mm. To live that way, to live that life about one's relationship to energy, to life force and a much more distilled level than most people living out in a world of distraction or external pulls get to experience. And I believe that today there are more and more people practicing an inquiry into their energetic system uh, simply through an out-in-the-world embodied meditation practice, that there's a much stronger movement of this these days, that one doesn't have to go away to a monastery or cave. There, there can be tremendous value. But for me, there was still um, a lot of actually attachment to identity of monasticism. And a little bit of confusion for some time around monasticism versus less than uh, practice, which is less potent. Some mm -hmm. sense that it was higher on the hierarchy. And, of course, there is a lot of hierarchical perception we can see within Buddhist teaching. Um, 
And something happened for me, which was, well, I can share a funny story about how I integrated back into sexuality, but I had such a deep, profound connection with the natural world and with um, what I've always referred to as my earth body, just a sense of this body, this form, not separate from the earth. And that one of the things we're healing through this path of healing the myth of separation is our distance that's held between us and Gaia, right? Mm-hmm. When I left the monastery, that aspect of my practice opened up tenfold. And the aspect of my practice that had to do with um, the relational field and waking up to interbeing through relating, whether it was sexuality or uh, Kalyanamita, spiritual friendship in different forms, it became so much more potent. And it just kind of showed me, oh, that even with the depth and the beauty of my monastic training, I had still been holding up a sort of either or mentality. Like the more profound way to practice is monasticism (laughs) and something about the relational field came second. And I see that as a danger uh, in an age when we really have a great deal of healing to do in the relational field and a recognition that we wake up together. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, it does. And I mean, there's a couple things that that resonated with me that I wanted to share on. But, you know, it's also interesting. I think there's a whole conversation to be had, maybe not today, about how we interpret monasticism through the modern Western lens versus how it's interpreted through through, um, Asian culture and and Buddhist cultures. Like, you know, because one thing because I, I share the experience with you of I've always struggled with relationality. And, you know, now I, I know this as a type of core wound of growing up in, in us culture. And, and part of it is a core wound of, um, unlovability for a lot of us, but it's also how hyper individualism and hyper consumerism feeds that. So, so in that way, there's a larger conversation to be had at some point about that if we want to. But, um, uh, you know, when I, when I encountered um, Asian Buddhist monastics and specifically Tibetan Buddhist monastics, who I became friends with sometimes and or just happened to be around when I was in, in Nepal or India, there was so much relationality and there's so much warmth and there's so much even physical connection, not in a sexual way, you know, but like, you know, where nuns will hold hands when they're walking down the street or monks and you know, I had monk brothers uh, who, who some of them are still monks, some of them are not. Um, in the Western world, we wouldn't even think about holding each other's hands, you know. And and that's a whole other, you know, thing to discuss because there's, there's sometimes um, homophobic fears, you know, uh, uh, un- underlying some of that. But I also know a lot of Western monks who are, um, who are, who are gay men and or, you know, not heterosexual necessarily and so there's there's a there's a there's quite a few i know so there's a whole element of discussion in that but anyways without going too down the rabbit hole there um so yeah i I think i think some of that is cultural where i could relate to you in that where i had i was alone also because i didn't go into a monastery i didn't go into a community i went into retreat so it was it was which isn't the norm in Tibetan Buddhism, you don't become a, a monk or a nun to to go sit alone. You become a monk or a nun to enter a monastery. So I'd often get asked, oh, you know, by Tibetans, what monastery are you from? I'd be like, uh, this teacher, you know, because, you know, that was just a question they would ask you because it's a normal question. 
So I think there's there's more we can go into there, but just briefly before we do, this part about the earth, you know, you reminded me something which I had forgotten. Um, I also have a, 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 a very personal and rich practice of working with embodiment and embodiment in relation to the earth we, we live on. A lot of practices I've led for periods of time are, are helping to reconnect to that uh, for myself and, and sometimes with others. But what what I what a memory that arose for me is, um, you know, we in Tibetan Buddhism is also complex because even as a monastic, you are still engaging with tantric Buddhism. You're just engaging with tantric Buddhism at, with with celibacy, so you're still working with these energies sometimes, but but within you, you know, not not with a partner or or multiple partners. Yeah, and so. Um, so I had this kind of internal thing. I don't know if I've ever shared this with anyone where the the earth became to me I just started thinking of the earth as my consort, you know. And I, that sounds really weird and I don't mean that in some like, you know, physical like like expression of sexuality, but an energetic one. Doesn't sound almost, all. Go on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good. And it was almost a necessity. And it, and it deepened when I was a monk because I was alone a lot of the time in retreat and I was alone in, in wilderness, you know, like you were. And so I just, I started exploring that relationship. And, you know, as, as I'm sure you know, we can be deeply held, you know, by the earth. It, it is, it is an, I don't, I don't know if I believe it's a being, though I'm not, I'm not against that idea, but it, but there's all kinds of energies and forces that are also part of our body because our body is also part of the earth our physical body. And so I just, yeah, just that whole field became also part of how I worked with my own, um, not only general Buddhist practice, but also, you know, uh, what we call Vajrayana or Tantric Buddhism. I mean, we even think of the earth as one of, uh, it's one of the um, um, like five female wisdom bodies or, or, you know, it's like a Dakini, basically, we can think of it like that. Thank you. I love the way that you frame that. And uh, Earth as consort, nothing about that seems odd to me in the least. And when we look around at the challenges we're facing today, the sobering reality we're facing through our disconnect with the Earth, if we, if more of us had had in our awareness the practice of Earth as consort, uh, we would not be in this field. And so if how we treat ourselves and how we treat our world are one and the same, we recognize how vitally important it is. I believe that we open up to a much more embodied and sensuous relationship with the earth. And part of what I mean by that, you know, when I first came to practice, it was about 19, and that was the same year that I read Joanna Macy's World as Lover, World as Self. Mm. And she was, she's been a longtime mentor and teacher of mine ever since that time. But this notion of world as lover, um, earth as consort, it opens us up to the inquiry into communion. What does it actually mean to get out of our heads, to get out of our conditioned mind or thinking center as center of gravity, to move into the integrated body-mind that practice invites, right? And to really invite other forms of knowing and relating, which I consider um, our receptivity, our capacity to listen, uh, to touch and be touched. Uh, when I say listening, not just 
auditory but energetic and tactile listening, our sensuous intelligence and even erotic intelligence can go in that same category for me because it is um, who we are <laughs> to feel and express our connectedness, um, to commune. So I really like the word communion when it, yeah. at this point in the conversation and just noticing then here we are back in a dominant paradigm that's very much bent on the duality of repression explosion and all this puritanical kind of conditioning. And there's a sense of like, oh, Eros, life force, I need to block it. I need to repress it. Or the only other choice is to let it explode instead of really a living inquiry about how to embody it well and how to trust the opening that happens through our practice, we become more and more open, more and more attuned, more and more sensitive, that that can weave in a very wise way through our erotic relating as well. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, and I think this this element of, I, I, I wanted to talk about it before, but maybe it's a good time to bring it up. Um, this element of how this fits into the Buddhist path for me is, you know, I don't know. I have lots of ways of digesting the Buddhist path and, and that continues. That will probably never end. I hope it never ends actually. <laughs> and, um, and it iterates for me as a practitioner on an experiential level more and more, uh, as I work on it. But what I've noticed is sort of, for me, it's come down to, um, I, I don't mean to be overly simplistic, but a lot of it has come down to opening to more and more of my experience and reality. Right. Because I can't, I can open other people's reality uh, through empathy and compassion, but I really can't actually. You know, what I can open to is mine, which may be in connection with someone else, which is fine. And, and then there's this depth of like intensity within that. You know, this is the word that keeps coming to mind. And, you know, sexual energy, at least in my experience in, the, in traditional Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism, is it's really engaged with at a very refined stage of the path for practitioners, a more advanced stage. Yeah. And a lot of people don't understand that. But for me, I see that more as like we're working with the most one of the most intense energies. So we have to have this ability or this already I, I guess you could say stage or preliminary stage of being able to be open with other kinds of energies first, including other kinds of uh, emotional reactions, anger, other kinds of attachment that are not as intense. And then as you're saying and pointing to so beautifully, then we have this practice and or I'm not saying we have to wait for that, right? I don't want to imply that it can be happening all along. It's just for me personally, it's very intense. It's the most intense energy. And the most intense energy, just like any energy that's intense for us, whether it's the most intense or not, because you know, that's relative to the person, you know, our habit patterns are samsaric mind that's confused about the reality of things. It really has no choice but to suppress, repress, or get rid, you know, engage it to get rid of it. And so, in a sense, I view it all now in my practice as like a form of me not being able to handle it and therefore I'm trying to get rid of it, you know? And so the repression and or explosion comes into that that picture. And I think, but you know, when we really look at it, because I think it's good to be honest about it, or at least my perspective on it in this conversation, it's a very intense energy, you know? It's like, I think it's the most intense energy we could experience as a human being. 
um, the, that energy. So yeah, just throwing that out there. I am with you. It's a very intense energy and it's such a gift for anyone who has a practice to have a period of, for, for you and I, it was a period of celibacy and monasticism or just a period or periods of more internal practice, um, taking a pause from that energy or from those relationships in order to deepen and distill. Uh, I find that has been incredibly valuable in my own life. And I also think that then there's a phase where people who have a practice and you can make your own choice. Someone's it's authentic for someone to be celibate for their whole life and for someone else to have lovers or to be in monogamous relationship, either very personal choices, but then to have the support. And this is what I wish was offered even more uh, within the Dharma world, the support for integration. Um, because for me, and I'm someone who was recently doing some beautiful work in our Sangha around just working with fire energy, the fire element as it comes through the field of sacred activism, of our desire to bring more conscious response and healing to our world, the fire energy of recognizing anger and rage on behalf of the collective, not as uh, a negative or a problem, mm. but energy to uh, meet, to be with, and also to transmute into compassionate action. I think it's important to name the fire element here because that's one of the aspects of Eros that is so confusing for people. So I would recommend everyone who's listening to call upon some support in your practice for how to embody the fire element, well, how to befriend the fire element. And how to just have a, a healthy living inquiry into Eros. How do I relate to this life force, this energy? How do I relate when it feels really triggering, when I'm really, really, really turned on by someone? Do I contract around that? Do I go into story around that? Can I let the energy be here and be embodied? Uh, how do I relate with the processes uh, of Eros? Because, again, one of the things practice simply offers, and I'll, I'll be really simple here too right now, is just the invitation to release, to see clearly and release so much conditioning, personal and collective, that leads to further suffering and is not useful. And there's even just a lot of conditioning around um, our sexual energy that keeps us from knowing deeper and more expansive uh, connectivity i would say yeah 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 i can thank you yeah yeah and i think i think we have a similar view on this which is you know another way to say what i was saying is you know for me it's all a practice of of training or practicing um letting be with with yes. with experiences as they arise whether it's a perception or a thought or or, or a feeling or an energy or an afflictive emotion, you know, or another person in my, my relationship and what's arising within me in relation to them. And, you know, and it's a, it's a very tough one for me to sit with and let be with, uh, in, now we're talking about intense physical, you know, erotic energy. It's a very tough one. And, um, but nonetheless, it gets easier. I think that's something to share with everyone too. It gets easier by, by letting be with, 
learning to let be with things that aren't as intense. And then we can slowly approach that, you know, because there's a word I want to throw out there. And I think, you know, we'll see what we can get into. But, you know, in a way, we could say because it's such an intense energy, it, it does have a danger to it. You know, and I think I think this needs to be named, not in like a scary way where we need to repress it or get all puritanical, but in in a way where how do we when we're really working with that, how do we how do we work responsive responsibly in relation to others? And I think that's a whole other side to the conversation too. Yeah. Yes, I'm with you, and and I think that's something that I wish more and more people had support for. That I feel like, uh, you know, my Dharma practice has offered so much support for is how to be with the intense energies in a way that we're not turning away from or turning towards, because that's our practice, but we're turning towards in such a way that we're really able to ground in the um, humility, um, the compassion, or at least we aspire to, the integrity to not cause harm as we're working with those energies. Does that resonate? Totally, yeah, and I think... I think this is where, as I see it, kind of the stages or vehicles, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, they, they're kind of, they organize it into vehicles or yanas, right? Mm-hmm. Not every form of Buddhism does that. So I just want to acknowledge that. And yeah, and I think I see the vehicles as really healthy forms of this because the first vehicle you're working more internally and you're really working with with the stickiness of attachment and craving and you're also working with, um, you know, pretty disciplined outer conduct or non-harm in relation to others. And and this sets up the 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 way to work internally with oneself with these kinds of energies, which then can can flow into the Mahayana, uh, um, right, or, or or the greater vehicle, and then eventually into Vajrayana or tantric practice. Which un- unfortunately, this word tantra gets interpreted into. I don't know if we want to go into this <laughs> department, but you know, a lot of tantra it it, it gets misinterpreted as um, enhancing sexual pleasure, where that's not really what we're talking about here. Of course, pleasure has to be included in the process, but we're not Mm -hmm. trying to enhance it through what we're talking about. At least that's not, I'm not sure what you feel about that, but. Yeah, the word enhance wouldn't quite be it. There's too much manipulation and force and control connected with the word enhance, (laughs) right? (laughs) We're honoring life energy and celebrating life energy and working with life energy as it is. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is, not sure if you want to, wade into these waters but you know i find this is where a lot of the what's called sacred sexuality it's a kind of a mixed bag you know yeah yeah well let's go there for a few minutes sure Um, certainly in a live phrase in the field and it might be helpful for people um and i just want to also add in before we go there that for me you know just to emphasize i can't really emphasize enough like to each their own, everyone their own choices around this. And yet I know that for me, it was so deeply freeing on my path. And it has been continually to say, where else have I not brought the power and subtlety and compassion of practice to? Where mm-hmm. else have I not looked? Where else have I not uncovered <laughs> conditioning? Um, and so I do believe very um, firmly that this is a domain many people don't feel they have enough support to turn towards. And now going into your question, <laughs> sometimes when we do look, where can we turn towards? We find, I think, a pretty um, 
unsatisfactory mix of capitalism and uh, money-making schemes blended with here's the tantric sexual secret that everyone is missing or that kind of thing. I remember that when I was looking for support after being a monastic, I uncovered a few um, uh, schools or areas of thought that just didn't, didn't certainly didn't uh, point me in the direction I was hoping to go, weren't useful. And so I think it's important to presence this. There's, sacred sexuality as a living inquiry that points to direct experiences guide and that there are you've mentioned in tibetan buddhism some incredibly rich threads and i've certainly benefited from that and then there's capitalism and a whole world of yeah (laughs) yeah totally and then and then i think there's people who are well-meaning and yet um you know, it, it, it takes the form of, um, I'm, I'm forgetting the word now, but like nouveau tantra, which doesn't, it doesn't have a basis in, in, in lineage more or less. And, yeah. and again, you know, I, I'm all for people healing and like, you know, figuring things out and, you know, everyone's free to do what they want to do. But, but sometimes, um, and again, we don't have to dwell on this if you don't, don't feel the need to, but, um, you know, sometimes, uh, actually things, you know, for whatever the reason is, whether it's, you know, for consumerist capitalist ideals or power or, or whatever the, the reason is, um, people do, um, how do you say, take their own liberties to interpret what some of these ancient teachings are saying. And um, there is, is a growing body of, of scholars. I'm thinking of one guy, um, you know, Christopher Harish, he goes by Harish or Christopher... Um, He's more in the in the in the uh, uh, sh- um, Shakti and, and Shaivite traditions in, in Hindu tantra, but he he's a Sanskrit scholar and he goes back and studies texts, you know, on this kind of stuff. And he 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 more he doesn't try to bash people for what they're doing. He's just saying that's not what these lineages were teaching and or or saying and so he goes back even to the word kundalini you know he has a lot of writing so oh christopher wallace i think is his name i'm forgetting it now really interesting website and you know he he i I respect his work because he's he's going in as a scholar not assuming something he's not going in with a bone to pick he really wants to uncover what were these things really about and especially in the some of the the tantric traditions that reach tibet um they have a lot of correlation with the Shakti and uh, some Shaivite traditions in, um, in in more, I guess, the Hindu side of it. And uh, some of these texts uh, came out around the same time with describing how to work with, you know, Kundalini or sexual energy specifically. And, you know, from what I've seen, most of that is like you're working with your pot of that energy, kind of like what we're describing. You're working with that for a long time. And very little of it actually has to do with how, I mean, it, it obviously has to do with how it gets expressed, but very little of it has to do with how it gets expressed in a, in a, in a human sexual relationship. That's always included. But as you were pointing out in the beginning, there's so much more to how that energy gets expressed in a creative and, let's say, um, beneficial way in the world, you know? Yes, and I'm, I love that you brought that word beneficial in because... That's certainly my experience in studying that through 
just Buddhism, but different wisdom traditions. Uh, European shamanism has a strong influence on me as well. Um, the connection between eros, erotic intelligence, um, you brought up kundalini energy specifically, and our capacity and willingness to allow our life force to be used in service for our world, for our collective. And that same way that that energy, as we spoke of earlier, can be intense, too much for people, can have a fire element to it, makes it easy energy to turn away from. And yet, at a time when um, certainly our world needs us, needs the heart of service um, in a very direct and broad way, um, there is benefit um, from what I've witnessed to practitioners really being willing to embody Eros, to integrate Eros as their expression of creativity and service and courage and truth-telling and change-making, yeah? yeah? So I think that's really, really important. I also just wanted to ask you if you'd speak to for a moment, because it's important what you were just saying about the difference between the deep traditions and people interpreting those traditions in ways that might seem, um, well, sexy or easy, but aren't necessarily um, carrying so much integrity or depth. How could people listening identify, let's say, uh, yeah. pay attention to that? Because there's so many sources of information these days. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I always joke that the word meditation has pretty much lost its meaning. It can really mean anything at this point. So so you're right. And, and you know, in a way, exploration and having a a lot of avenues to explore is a good thing because people can explore their minds, they can explore their human experience. But then like you're bringing up, like having the discernment that that's in short supply, <laughs> you know, I find, right, discernment is kind of, you know, that has to grow out of our own wisdom. Uh, but, but people who really want to go deep, I think eventually they, they, they discover that. So I think it happens. But yeah. Yeah. So, so thanks for that question. And I think, um, how to, how to, how to tackle this, you know, I'll say one thing quickly, which is, you know, I'm kind of interested in where, where this, this idea of the word Tantra, which actually it means to weave. That's one definition of the, of the word, um, in, in Tibetan Buddhism, we more think of it as continuity, uh, but we even continuity is kind of similar. Um, so I'm kind of interested in where where things went wonky, you know, and and I don't know because I don't study it. Like I said, Chris Christopher Wallace is a good guy to check out because he does study this as a scholar, and he's also a practitioner. He's involved in a tradition, so he's a practitioner scholar. Where where to me that that I really respect people taking that path in whatever tradition they're in. And um, anyways, um, you know, it seems like at so, there was a certain Western movement that that started to in interpret. You know, we're talking, you know, th this is possibly, you know, 60 to 80 years old. It's not that new. And, um, you know, and then somehow, of course, in, 
you know, and again, I don't want to demonize this. So I want to be careful here. You know, I'm sure with kind of like our own struggles with, with repression in the West, you know, then there was these things of like, how do we explore our, our sexuality? And then, you know, as we were saying it, it, some of those, when they're, when we're engaging with something that's, that's, that's pleasure centered only, let's just say that pleasure is not bad, but when it's pleasure centered only, and there's no deeper questions being asked, our pleasure from a Buddhist perspective, like, like it's not pleasure itself. It's our relationship to clinging and craving around that pleasure. And that has no end. I, I don't know about you. I found that has no end, you know? And it's just, a, it's a thirsty monster that keeps wanting more, <laughs> right? And it leaves me less happy, you know? That's just really the point. It's not like a religious dogma or it has to, from my perspective, or it has to be some big, you know, edict. Uh, it's just, it's just about happiness and, and or I should say contentment and suffering. You know, it really comes down to that. And so we each have to explore that for ourselves. But I find these these ancient traditions, you know, going back to, I'll describe in a second more to your question, you know, they human beings have been exploring this for thousands of years. And why not rely on some of their explorations? Why do we try to invent something new that has the risk of just basically feeding um, our attachment more in, in a negative way? We're, we're, you know, in a way, like you said, it's sort of like we have this repression and explosion. When we feed the explosion, it never ends. And we're left bereft, you know, we're, you know, at least that's my experience. Um, that's, that's been shown to me again and again in my life uh, through lots of experiences and, and definitely through ex exploration of sexuality and all that, you know, because this is a whole other topic. But as a, as a, as a, someone who identifies as male and how that, you know, how my life has been conditioned through that. There's all kinds of other stuff, you know, shame, all kinds of other stuff that, that we can touch on that later if we want. But anyways, in regards to the, to the lineages and specifically what I work with and, and, and train in and study the Tibetan Buddhist lineages. Yeah. I think it comes down to this. It comes down to like, you know, are we trying to liberate our, our being controlled by our afflictive emotions and 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 thoughts and and we could just say emotional reactions are we are we using something to liberate from that are we using something to to um fulfill that you know like you said it in another way it's sort of like that is the that is the habitual tendency so anything that takes advantage of that it's very obvious to me you can just read someone's website and it's pretty obvious now i'm not talking about healing here because i think that's another topic where not everybody wants to use not everybody wants to to open and to liberate because I'll, I'll i don't know from your experience I'm, I'm i'd like to hear this to me it's like it's really really hard <laughs> you know it's really hard it takes a lot of i don't know willingness to 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 go in to pain more and more and the, and the, the ability to do that yes and for, and sobered the sacred sobering and as you yeah. were just in your own way so many people don't want to be sobered they'd rather resist or stay on the surface of things continue which i understand and to, i think you know we need to hold that in compassion for each other right you know that 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 element you know, wherever we're at but yeah some people where they're at is they have some trauma and they need some they need to use some of these paths of sacred sexuality to heal um, all kinds of traumas around that. So I'm not really going to bash that. I think that's a good thing, right? Because not everybody's looking for liberation. But then when we are, then we do have to make this distinction. Are we just feeding the, 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 the craving 
you know, the attachment that wants more and more and more or wants to enhance the experience of pleasure, as we were talking about, or are we trying to go so deep into the experience of pleasure that we cease to experience pleasure and pain as dualistic entities? You know, this is a whole nother side of it, right? Because ultimately, I, I mean, I feel like, I don't know, I'm not, I don't have any really deep, deep, you know, realization or anything like that. I, I, I'm not claiming to have any of that. I don't. Um, I'm dedicated to practice and study and, and, and committed to that. That's really what it comes down to. But um, I have this theory that that's at least the Buddhist path. That's where it's leading us. You know, that, that seems to be where it points to is, is, you know, we have to go in and we go so far in to all of our human experience, the pain, the pleasure, everything um we don't become but we go in right there's a difference there that it ceases to it ceases we cease to um contract around it you know we cease to act out of uh selfish interest because it's expanded so far out of that self-interest and the self-interest can't be found anymore and that's you know it seems like that's really what it's pointing at um Right. I'll stop there. I could, I'll say more, but I'll give you some. I appreciate what you're sharing. And, and another way, again, very simple, another helpful inquiry is, are we going into the domain of sexuality of arrows to dissolve the self or to affirm the delusion of self? As mm. it is a phenomenal pathway for dissolving the self, if that is our intention uh, for waking up to interbeing. Uh, we consciousness non-separation in such a greater way you, you with me totally. so it has yeah. a lot Beautiful. to do with intention <laughs> and um you know just to to kind of touch on something very like a practical way people can explore this for themselves too i might just presence because there's so many different ways to interact with eros uh, one simple way is through dance. I mm. imagine some people listening love and have a practice of dance in their lives and others perhaps not so much. But um, I have always had a love of dance and I recognize dance as a tool for consciousness, not just something that's about um, either shaking out energy because I want to get away from it or... Um, trying to get away from a feeling. Uh, I recognize dance as a really beautiful domain of the invitation to go down and into our bodies, to deeply listen, to respond in the moment, but very different from the stillness of the meditation cushion, to let movement be our portal for both connection and also for being with all that's moving through the inner landscape. Not, not again, shaking it out. Like sometimes I think actually in ecstatic dance, that can kind of be the, the approach. I'm talking more about conscious uh, dance. But I've come to, even in certain retreats, invite people from stillness into movement, into dance, into seeing how it feels to dance together with guidance, like as meditative practice, to, to recognize that too, connection, relating, the intelligence of our bodies um, as really important domains through which we deepen our practice rather than seeing that as separate from practice. And that, it, that can include uh, pleasure, 
when we, if we're having a story that says dualistically pleasure versus non-pleasure, one is practice, one isn't, that's BS. Anything dualistic is. (laughs) So just encouraging people to mix it up and to spend more time recognizing the vehicles of our bodies um, beyond through sitting meditation walking meditation or the other forms of so many forms of practice for instance in tibetan buddhism um as well as zen but to to broaden it if we want to really make our practice be something that is both resilient that is always going deeper and also that is awake to the opportunities of the relational field does that uh, resonate yeah i love that i mean it resonates with me as as like something i I don't know if I envy, but I, I don't do that. You know, I'm a very like sedentary person. Um, I, I did at some point like to dance. Um, I have some affinity with Latin American culture and music because from a young age, when I was like 16, I, I started I started playing in a salsa band. But first I was listening to salsa and all kinds of different, you know, Latin uh, folkloric musics. And, and then like the only dance I ever liked was salsa dancing. And I'm not like good at it. But um, but yeah, now I tend to. So so what resonates is I think that sounds like such a such a wonderful way for people to work with it because you know I do it in a sedentary way where I open to all my experience. But that's been something I, I've trained in for you know, yes, ten ten or fifteen years, and and I don't think that is the the most natural and or available way for a lot of people. Where I think involving movement um can really help like and and what what you're saying totally makes sense yeah 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 and this is another conversation you know by the way one thing i've recognized in our talk today is that it's kind of like a tree where Mm. arrows in the trunk of the tree and there's so many different branches we could follow and explore if we wanted to so we know we'll have more discussions but um there is certainly a a movement unfolding right now within Buddha Dharma of teaching and supporting people to experience the teachings in both traditional and non-traditional ways, in ways that I would say embrace the relational field more fully as well, mm-hmm. both a teaching tool and a domain for awakening. So I'm excited about that. And as long as that's held in integrity, that's really can be very useful and important. Um, and I also will share just a humorous story for people that might be helpful for some listening. And I may have shared this story with you, but it was when I first yeah. sat in the monastery. And I remember just having my own, like, okay, I'm going to take time to just establish my practice here in this city, this urban environment. I was waking up at like 4 a.m. to have long periods and darkness and with dawn before the city arose and just to i don't know about you but it feels like when we leave the monastery there's a process of internalizing integrating the monastery within like it's a structure there's a way in which i'm still a monk and will be until the day i die and probably beyond it's just becomes who who you are is the intentionality you bring to everything in life right but there was a day when I um, 
had kind of decided, you know, I'm not ready for the domain of sexuality yet. I That feels like a bit much. I'm still getting used to just the city and I'm not in any hurry. And I remember asking a stranger that I met, I think getting into a conversation about dance and they recommended a women's dance weekly gathering that happened. They didn't tell me much about it, just said it had really, really good music. And it was in walking distance from where I was staying. And so that spoke to me. And I remember showing up with my still shaved head, um, always bringing beginner's mind with me wherever I went. And the door opened and the walls were painted dark red and there were poles and it was a pole dancing class. <laughs> it was so awesome. And I remember just having a moment of, oh my, like how, how have I arrived here? How did I, how did I get here? The door closed behind me and just deciding, okay, beginner's mind with everything. Like, I'm not going to make any assumptions. I'm not going to feed the sex spirit divide. Like, what is this? And how did I get here? And just having a moment of watching um, a woman who kind of initially appeared just very oh, homely, almost a librarian kind of a presence, just begin to move and to teach with mm. this also incredible music playing. And I just started to fall to the ground weeping. Mm. Tears I had no idea would come because something about recognizing the divine and true nature and this person's embodiment of erotic movement was so healing for me. <laughs> and it just kind of affirmed in that moment, like, okay, the monastery is who I am wherever I go. Nothing is left out. And my job is to keep an eye out for the divine in all domains and to certainly recognize we're in holding lines, lines which are illusions, which I had created from the mind of separation about what's what. <laughs> yeah, right? Totally. Yeah. I love that story. <laughs> I'm I'm like picturing it. I'm picturing you like the shaved head nun coming in. <laughs> um it's so great. Yeah, and, and what you started to say at the end, I mean that's very much what I've come to in my practice is like nothing can be left out. And you know, for me, that sometimes feels like a charnel ground, you know, which is the leaning into the pain area. And then what we're talking about today, uh, like leaning into the pleasure area or not, you know, leaning in means learning to let be with it, you know, not to repress or explode, right? To, yes. to catalyze the energy. Yeah. And um, yeah, I feel like this is the way I, I never like to assume how a Buddhism is going to unfold in a culture. But it's kind of obvious because the majority of us are, are not going to take the monastic path in, in Western Buddhism. And so, you know, we need to find a way to um, not, not, not make a divide between what is the path and what's not the path. Or to make, you know, where holiness is on one side and, and, and you know, the, the other side is dirty, you know, which is that Puritan, Puritanism. Yeah. And, you know... I know he's a he's a controversial figure, but for me, um, at least in the Tibetan Buddhist world, uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche really he really ushered in what what is the possibility for a Western at least at least Western Tantric Buddhism, um, and you know 
let alone his life and how he lived his life, anything people might have issues with. If you just read his teachings and you engage with his talks and books, um, they're 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 very profound and give a lot of advice for us of how to work with this in the West because he defined the West as um, speedy, uh, like suffering from speed, aggression, and um, and hyper materialism, basically. Yeah. Um, where and, and he he probably mentioned Puritanism at points, but um, but anyways, um, he, you know, when he came, it was a, it was like the the full on hippie, you know, peace and love movement, right? So he came, those were all his students. So maybe he didn't see so much Puritanism, or maybe I'm sure he did in, in other elements of society. But anyways, um, yeah, he has this. He has so many teachings on this, on on more or less like not leaving every, anything out. And you were, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned too about dance and and how how we're exploring in in Western Buddhism how how to re how to reimagine a holistic path. That's the way I think about it, because. Actually, in Tibetan, but you know, I talked about being sedentary. That's just sort of my proclivity or personality. But I think it's also an interpretation of Eastern spirituality. That's not, that's kind of wrong, you know. Not wrong. It's not wrong. I would just say there's more, right? There's yeah. more to it. And what I mean by that is like Tibetan Buddhism has dance, has a lot of ritual. It has, and Zen does too. You know, it has ritual. It has other expressions of art. You know, um, the sciences, these are all things people study in the monastery. And so, you know, but, you know, am I going, I'm personally, I mean, I really appreciate and love Tibetan culture, but I don't really want to learn their, like, you know, the, the, the form of, it, it doesn't resonate with me, like, you know, some of the music forms and things like that, even though I appreciate it. Um, as far as the ritual stuff, I do it as part of, you know, tantric practice because I've, I've found meaning in it. So I enjoy that. Um, but aside from that, um, you know, what you're really talking about is how we need to incorporate the body. And I think, you know, that I think I'm really interested in seeing what, what comes out of that, which, which, as you already said, you know, goes into this realm of how do we dissolve the self world barrier and not, you know, in, instead of reaffirming it or, or re-encouraging that or, or even contracting it further. I think that's really what it comes down to when we're developing you know, these new modalities. Yes, I'm with you. And I want to appreciate uh, you for mentioning Chogyam Trungpa, also a huge inspiration for me over the years. And also, you know, as a female Dharma teacher, especially, I think it's important to name, like, as I have spent time even in Zen studying history and the female Buddhas and their stories, it has been clear how much misogyny has threaded through um, Buddhist history. It has been clear how much patriarchal conditioning has impacted and still does impact today Buddhism. There's so many things I could say about this, not going to go into right now. Yeah. But I will name that um, that impacts all of us in our practice and the, the stories that we can read about, which are carrying something similar to Puritanism mm. in terms of a hatred of the female body, a hatred of female beauty, as an example, um, a real fear of Eros has always felt uh, sticky and confusing to me, given the yeah. context 
practice. And, you know, this feels, well, something personal I'll share is just that it is my experience and we're all different. But for me, that when I made a commitment to the path of sacred sexuality and re-embodying Eros, re-honoring to be very specific, uh, my vagina as um, being such a sacred aspect of my Dharma practice. My practice took a turn that I never could have expected and deepened in ways I never had foreseen. But I think I had a glimpse of when I read these stories of the female Buddhas because I sensed, oh my gosh, there's something historically that human consciousness, especially through patriarchy, is terrified of. And it does come through arrows. Mm. Just again, we're defining that very broadly, both related to sacred sexuality and life force. But there's something that gets lost profoundly when there's just a (laughs) turning away from it or trying to turn it into um, any dogmatic approach. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for raising that up. And I feel like, you know, we can do a whole nother episode on this, you know, a whole nother conversation because, but I'd like to say something now and see, you know, if we want to explore it more here. Um, Yeah. You know, it, it, it is a can of worms and I want to be conscious. There's many views on this. Um, it's my view that patriarchy and misogyny, they have been the, you know, it has been the world. So it's not, it's not just Buddhism. It's not just Christianity. It's not just religion. It's not just politics. It's just, it has been the world, like a predominant, uh, system in the world and systems and, and, and ideologies and ways of thinking and not embodying, um, we could say like sacred feminine and, and not respecting women. Right. And so I, I think when we acknowledge it, then it, it, it's like there's no area in the world it hasn't touched, including Buddhism, right? So I just see it that way, and 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 that that means it's it's important. I I, I think I'm I think it's being un, it's being transformed as we're speaking. You know, this is this is the era we're moving into a different era. And in in Buddhist and, and Hindu cosmology, you know, they they have this this inter, interpretation of yugas, right, or periods of time where they they have certain flavors of how our samsara karma plays out um i think we're in the kali yuga for some more time and kali by the way is a feminine it's a wrathful feminine energy uh, but i think we're in the kali yuga for some more time but i think you know to me it feels like we're having a major shift here and like you say um when we look at the broader picture it's not just i mean uh it's not just about female bodied or people who identify as female bodied it, it's about um all of us you know my and and to me it's been god i got so much to say about this <laughs> but it's it's um there's the systems issues and and what what how this affects female bodied individuals in the world and there's a whole conversation around that obviously that things need to change as quickly as possible in order to um benefit more beings and to to move into to not base um any systems off of any kind of inequality i mean that's just its own statement and you know conversation but because we're talking about eros and the and the spiritual field here and how patriarchy and i love how you brought it up as kind of an energy because that's how i see it and even my own relationship to sexuality i think i shared this in our last conversation that 
was talking about my mom's death and you know my friends brought me to a strip club like that was their you know to go drink beer and go to strip club after her funeral and it was incredibly incongruous for me there was something like part of me was just like this is not the thing to do you know this is not the thing to be doing and at the same time I was into it because I was like a 16 year old well yeah 16 year old boy and and anyways and then you know we can go into the field of how just there's so much to talk about about how met both men and women are conditioned you know in very unhealthy ways around this around sexuality patriarchy and misogyny um but what i did want to say kind of relating to some deeper aspects of it is um i feel it's just it's an imbalance that needs to be worked with in in ourselves like individually and then culturally and and you know socially and that imbalance for me and i'm just love to hear your, your thoughts on this so so in in classical tantra we have masculine and feminine energy those are those are named you know or they're a little bit more they're named more esoterically they're not always named explicitly but in in tantric buddhism we see we see masculine energy actually as the skillful means the kind of in its beneficial form the skillful means it's actually the compassionate or loving energy it's the energy it's the action that comes out of compassion so we we see it as you know action based energy where we see the feminine more as the uh, related to the to shunyata we see the feminine more as the spacious womb um and so much of what we're naming here is i think our our conversation is circled around that spacious womb for the most part of like for me one of my main practices is relating to space you know relating to either opening that up or meeting unconditioned space if i can and trying to train and letting be with that and uh to me because i have in each of us we have these energies you know they're, they're not they're not bodied we all have both you know no matter even how we identify or any of that we all have both and and i feel like it the enlightened expression of these is when they unify and there's no more duality around them right and so so i just wanted to share that it's not coming out exactly in the way i it's in my head but i think you know what i mean it's sort of like yeah. i see this as a deeper disconnect of balance of, of energy within oneself and and socially and culturally yes an imbalance of energy within and within our world and so yes there is the systemic layer of yeah. patriarchy but you're talking more about the much bigger picture and how we are in yes the beautiful messy and dynamic healing of that now or rebalancing and that rebalancing invites everyone each of us in our practice into a very deep living inquiry into the balance of what i would call yin and yang the receptive and expressive or active aspects of nature and consciousness uh, you shared beautiful language from tibetan buddhism for this uh, balance and i will say something that's been fascinating for me is I guide a lot of work around this, uh, and I want to emphasize this is this is work for people of every gender. It's not a, a feminine masculine thing. Uh, it's a collective thing. And it was so interesting to me. I also do a lot of teaching around um, teaching a field called regenerative leadership, which is really reconnecting with what some might consider more feminine ways of leading uh, the rebalancing of the yin and yang in how we lead and facilitate and teach 
But it's so interesting because my experience was when I first opened up this field of work for people to come in, many more men beyond women or people of any gender signed up and were like, I need this because I've become so aware through my Dharma practice of the ways I've been conditioned to um, only think my value is in the young, the active, the expressive, mm. productivity, the getting somewhere, the attaining, even as spiritual practice, trying to be the solo heroic spiritual warrior, and recognizing that um, they were being called to really revalue and re-recognize the strength of uh, the slow, the yin, uh, the fertile emptiness you pointed use the word womb that space the spacious womb which this is what our practice teaches us but it's so valuable to look at how it fits into and supports the healing of patriarchal paradigm which is just held on to one side of the duality rather than the sacred integration of both <laughs> yeah so yeah, but- really rich really yeah rich. yeah I think we should continue with this this conversation yeah. around this because it's, it, it, you know, this begs a whole nother question, which, which again, this could be just some some questions for, for next time too, if you want, unless you want to say something of like, I don't know, I'm getting more and more suspicious of putting energy into, we need system change. So I'll just say that straight out, you know, changing things. <clears throat> when we make change changes on, on the level of law, and and representation and leadership those have those those have big waves so i just want to say i'm big fans of those processes you know and i'm getting more and more suspicious of when there's too much energy being put into outer shift as opposed to the inner work you know and i think there's a lot of us recognizing this right now you know yes yes this is why i wrote um, my last book luminous darkness about the rebalancing of light and dark because it's not enough to simply work on the systems we have to address. We have to address the seed from which those imbalances get perpetuated of that impact all of these <laughs> come from this seed of this fundamental duality. And then right now I'm guiding a course on sacred activism. And, you know, this, so many people, so many people are hungry for the invitation to um, celebrate the merging between the inner work and the state of our world in a way that this conversation is pointing to. You know, just an aside, Scott, you and I have been holding the inquiry of what is something we'd like to co-teach about uh, next year. And it could be about this, the yin and yang, sacred feminine, sacred masculine, rebalancing such a rich topic so i would i would love that yeah yeah i'm in (laughs) yeah i think that's great yeah because as we can see like our you know we've already gone beyond an hour and you know i i feel like we just we just barely touched the surface you know because you know we didn't you know there's also this whole realm of how how to access what we're talking about i mean you, you described a little bit you gave some practical things for folks but i think there's so much more of how to how to access these things and you know, there's um, and, and and a lot of that it's just so experiential, where where the theory is the, you know, for me, I I've I've relied on analytical thinking mind most of my life because that's what's prized, that's how we're taught, 
in in modern education and that is the, that is part of the imbalance for me of of it's a masculine tool that's helpful but it becomes harmful when it becomes becomes overemphasized and we're not able to let be um as you said in 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 this in the space within the space of something within you know the time that something allows right like yes. not pushing yeah. And so for me, this has been a wound I've been trying to heal for many years. And yeah, I've definitely come to think of it as like um, relating to those feminine energies within me more and more. And, in you know, in the broadest sense of what that means, right? Yes, absolutely. And um, there's something, you know, we've touched again and again in this call just about the healing of the body-spirit divide, and the yeah. sex-spirit divide. But anyone who has a deep practice and who wants to continually go deeper, it's very, very useful to recognize the ways that we may have been conditioned, as you're saying, to overvalue the rational mind or more linear forms of knowing and to recognize the right place for that while also no longer avoiding the innate wisdom of our bodies, which, of course, everything about our meditation practice puts us back in touch with, but that some of us have even more work to do around that because this is a time when, um, this uh, one way I would put it is that our capacity to listen deeply, to be receptive and to really be awake to our relationship with the natural world um, is vitally important. And so Eros, erotic intelligence, guides us, can guide us not only in the path of letting sacred sexuality and our most intimate relationships be about waking up through that portal, but also about reminding us of our innate capacity to connect with the trees we walk by, with the earth in a more palpable, potent way. It's just a time when there's not anything that is useful anymore for human consciousness <laughs> to both serve egocentricity and anthropocentricity. And yeah. I think Eros is a very important ally. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think I think that that's a wonderful place to close to for today. Because I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't have any more. You know, I have more to say about it, but I think just you. You said it. Yeah, that's, that was beautiful. Perfect. Um, Eden, thank you so much. You know, as as always, I feel like we end on a high note, <laughs> and, and you know, uh, with with a lot more questions and a lot more to explore. And and yeah, definitely, I think we have a we have a nice topic for a, for a retreat we can co teach. So, absolutely, yeah. thank you so much, Scott, and thank you yeah. those who are listening. Yeah, thanks so much.